Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, Film Chat listeners. Once again, there is no real intro bit. So I've been forced to just sit here by myself and record a sort of rambly introduction all alone, just me and my thoughts, I'll stop talking and then there'll be the intro jingle and then I'll go straight into some kind of review, (sighs) how did I come to this, I regret every decision I've ever made, I'm so alone, we can't be in the same room, but a podcast can't be stopped, Cinemas are empty, the industry is fucked, but we won't log off. We're not going out, we're staying at home. And when we watch films, we watch them alone. We sit in our pants, stick on something crap, and then we hit Skype for a little chat. Little chat, little chat, little chat, little chat. Alright, there's been some marvels. Some marvels have happened uh, since last time we recorded. And uh, gonna gonna rattle through the Marvels here. Hit me with them. Most people have kind of decided by now how they feel about Marvel films, right? You're, you're sick of them. You think they're okay. You love them. You hate them. Whatever. And so I think that both of these movies, those being Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and the more recent Eternals, directed by Chloe Zhao, they're, they're, these are Marvel movies, full on Marvel movies, and uh, that is how you should just, you know judge what your experience is going to be. <laughs> going into them and if like the whole marvel thing is like you you know you're completely over it uh then don't don't see them and you probably wouldn't want going to anyway but they won't like change your mind i would say Uh, whereas if you can still like you know stick one on kick back enjoy the whole like like i don't know i mean the the thing that i always feel about them which i've you know phrase i've used before is like the the saturday morning cartoon experience it's kind of what the marvel films are offering you in different flavors uh, and if you still have some time for that, then, you know, there might be things to enjoy both these movies. So firstly, uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the of the Ten Rings. I don't have a great deal to say about this one, so I thought I would kind of stick it in there, get it out of the way. Um, it's directed by Destin Daniel Cretton and stars Simu Liu uh, as the titular Shang-Chi alongside uh, Aquafina and uh, Tony Long, very memorably playing the villain, great actor. And it follows Simu Liu as a kind of like every man living in San Francisco, who's a kind of average Joe uh, who works as a hotel porter. And it turns out he's got this history of being a kind of trained uh, Kung Fu dude who's like, yeah, a powerful Kung Fu man. And his father is a kind of Chinese gangster who's also like hundreds of years old, an immortal being who has these like 10 rings that give him superpowers. 
uh, and he is like hunting down Shang-Chi to try and draw him back into the fold, prompting a bunch of, you know, for fun action sequences. Here's a clip. You have the wrong guy. Does he look like he can fight? Come on, bro. You okay? So this is like Marvel doing a martial arts film or a kung fu film. And that's essentially what you get out of it. And a lot of what is bad about it is the same thing that is bad in like other Marvel films. Most egregiously bad CGI, which I think is this is probably one of the worst looking Marvel films that, that they've made in terms of the over-reliance on incredibly hanky CGI. Like the set, the last act of this film is just not easy on the eyes. You start to long for them to just to go into a room, you know, <laughs> yeah. just go into a room where there's real walls and just they filmed them and then they just cut and printed the normal walls you know without yeah. fucking with them rather than this sort of floating head on cg bodies like experience you know like the end is just like there's dragons there's demons there's monsters but there's also like grass and sky and like villages and stuff that's all also cg and like there's like a bit where they drive into a field get out of a truck and it's like it's all cgi and it's like this just is all just I wish you were in a real field you know they exist on earth you know yeah. it's not like some it's not mars or some fantasy landscape it's like I mean, I do think the production of this film was affected by coronavirus, so in some respects it is understandable, but um, it just makes for an exhausting viewing experience. You know, That said, some of the action sequences are really well choreographed and look really cool. There are two real standout sequences that are maybe just about worth the price of admission if you're if you're up for them basically what you're getting is a bit of like it's just not as good as if you watch like an old jackie chan movie but they are still like quite good in the context of like you know marvel's canon and feels somewhat fresh both are kind of trailed a bit but there's like a big fight scene on a bus which does all the stuff that you want it's like wittily choreographed he uses the stuff around him you know, there's a bunch of, he's like running away from a bunch of bad guys using the things on the bus, jumping around in kind of creative ways. Uh, and that's really good fun. There's another fight on the scaffolding of a skyscraper, which is like similarly like witty and well thought out with like fun little gags and moments. Um, and that's pretty good. And the cast is like decently charming. Simu Liu is just a bit boring, I would say. A somewhat bland guy. A bit. He reminds me of like Henry Cavill, you know, he's just, you know, he's just, a, he's just sort of there. Um, but he's also fine he's just like essentially an, an objectionable guy um aquafina is pretty good in it uh slightly sort of too heavily relied upon as they're like oh, get a load of this crazy fantasy stuff going on around me you know I don't, i'm not used to this i'm just normal um those types of gags are like litter the movie constantly uh and are a little annoying but yeah fine tony long also excellent just a great actor huge amounts of presence kind of crushing it as this like you know, ageless, uh, like <laughs> mafia Don, um, type man. Yeah, very enjoyable. So that's Shang-Chi. Eternals. Just saw this the other day. Um, so yeah, directed by Chloe Zhao. It's got like a massive ensemble cast. There are so many heroes. There's just, one of the things about this film is that there's what, there's so many of them. There's 10 of them. 10. That's so many. There's Ten. like, that's more than like there were Avengers and they each had a separate film establishing them. And there's just, there's just so many of them so gotta gotta go through them here <laughs> you got you got ajak right that's salma hayek you got cersei that's Gemma chan you got icarus that's richard madden you got kingo 
That's Kumail Nanjiani. You've got Sprite. Who plays Sprite? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> uh, you've got Fastos. That's Brian Tyree Henry. You've got Makari. That is played by Lauren Ridloff. You've got Druig. Uh, that is Barry Ke- Keegan. That Irish guy. I don't know how his surname is pronounced. Uh, Gilgamesh, uh, who's Don Lee. And Thena, Angelina Jolie. That's not the end of the cast. That's just like the central cast because those are all the heroes. Like plus, there's like more people in it as well. They somehow find room for like additional characters. So they are all like millions of years old. All of them. <laughs> okay, that's this is ageless beings, right? They're all like li- existed since like practically the dawn of time or some unspecified history. They've been on Earth since five thousand BC, uh, and they're there to to fight some other kinds of like monsters that are called deviants. Uh, so they've been sent there by this godlike being who's like essentially a gigantic robot in space called Arashem, who created them uh, and has sent them to Earth to fight the Deviants. They've been there for thousands of years. Just they, they beat the Deviants at some point, and then they're just chilling out on Earth, and they get they go to different parts of the Earth and like, you know, make friends or whatever and settle into human society. But they've been instructed not to, you know, mess with the course of human history. They're only there to fight the Deviants. But they do, they still do a little bit of that anyway. And then eventually you come into the present day. They've lived, you know, I can't emphasize enough how many thousands and thousands of years they've lived. They get, get to the present day and then like the deviants are back and they've kind of got to get the, they've got to get the gang back together to like fight them off. Okay, here is a, here's a clip from Eternals. <laughs> Cut! Okay, everyone, that was good. I think we can do 10% better. That was beautiful. Very, very good. Friends from college are here. Sure. Oh, boss! Perfect timing. Welcome to the set of Shandar Dastane Icarus. I'm playing you. You like the costume? We need to talk. Tell the director I have some notes. We need for him. to talk to you in private. Oh, Karan, he's worked with me for 50 years. I trust him completely. Actually, when we first met, he thought I was a vampire, and he tried to stake me through the heart. I've apologized so many times. Not quite enough times. Very close, though. I'll let you know. Oh, I have to get ready for the next scene. Come to my tent. We'll talk there. You You guys are going to love the next scene. I come in on a wire because, you know, I can't fly. Wait, are we getting back together? We need to talk. The deviants are back. We don't know how many there are. You need to come with us. So I I quite enjoyed this film. Like, uh, it was, this was a fun watch. I think the thing that I find like so hard to wrap my head around this is obviously they've made all the major properties, you know, already. So they've, they've done most of the famous superheroes and now they're moving and they're branching out into some of the less well-known ones. This is like a Jack Kirby comic, very brightly colored, psychedelic, kind of like wacky. He was like really into, um, uh, godlike beings and this kind of cosmic stuff and sort of like very far out there. But as the premise for a film it just does not there's it has such low appeal as a premise what is it about this story that you want like that makes anybody want to to know like there's a million central characters like none of them are more obviously important than the others like what's their origin like they're just made by a kind of deity figure how do you relate to like an alien that's thousands of years old you can't really hang comprehensible psychology around it sure you know what i mean yeah it's also just like a lot of fantasy and you know superhero stuff is like intrinsically a bit silly and like carries with it a bunch of nonsense that you kind of like you know it's part of the appeal and you kind of embrace it and like on that scale this film is like just so far up there in terms of like the silliness and and i did find that to ultimately be part of its charm um 
and you know you were talking about uh dune and and the green knight like mistaking um taking their subject matter seriously for like having a bunch of incredibly serious and humorless characters and i think this is something which eternals does quite well they're constantly spouting the most absurd i mean i think i i'm particularly fond of like any humor just involves like incongruously large numbers so yeah. like whenever the eternals were saying how many thousands of millions of years old they were i was you know i was like primed to you know snicker away but it's all totally straight faced right they're like yeah. absolutely serious about it and i think that that is something which is to the film's credit i caught a very brief interview with um chloe Zhao. she was talking to simon mayo and they were talking about the tonality of the film and her kind of touchstone for it was anime and i think that is actually a pretty good comparison where like a lot of anime is like extremely out there like very very big broad and bizarre uh, stories and premises and ideas and, and worlds that are very splashy and colorful uh, but the characters are all like deadly serious about what they're you know what they're doing whatever there's no winking yeah like and i think that that's that's certainly true true of this film and the real strength of it like and i think this is something which is quite good in marvel in, in general is they are quite good at in general at the casting and at sort of rapports between characters and it's it is struggling to survive under the weight of unfunny quips inserted by their sort of bevy of house writers who are sort of nervous that like the audience is all going to get up and leave if someone doesn't like make a sort of cringe inducing gag like some kind of like pop culture reference or something but it is like a great cast they're all like likable they're all you know very it's like obviously highly diverse as well like brian terry henry plays a um like a gay character who gets like a big full screen snog with his husband which you know feel, feels unusual um and it is unusual and um uh, Macaris, the lauren ridloff character is deaf it's like a deaf superhero is quite cool but they they're all like very appealing actors who feel like they're committed to their roles even though there's so many of them and it's so, such nonsense and it's they're so like kind of thinly sketched in a way but there's something about there's just something believable about them inhabiting those characters. I thought Richard Madden is like really good in it. His character is essentially Superman. He fires lasers out of his eyes and he's kind of like an indestructible and can fly and stuff. He's the sort of Superman eternal. But he just has like charisma, screen presence, invests it with real... He's like doing his best to bring some real pathos to his, to his role. Uh, and Gemma Chan, who is the kind of most closest thing to a central character in the movie also is very sort of game you know they're all just yeah. kind of up for it and the other thing i think it has in its favor is although there's a kind of deadening quality to the, the marvel cg light show this has a very particular aesthetic at least the, the eternals are all drawn in these kinds of like um wavy golden kind of geometric lines that sort of is the nature of their powers whatever and they all kind of do that mm. and it is used in the service of some at least somewhat more interesting looking, you know, CGI light shows than um, than for if you get in like Black Widow or Shang-Chi, for example, where it feels like there's some design work that's gone into it and it's like quite cool to look at. So there are some like striking looking shots and Chloe Zhao's sort of Terrence Malick influence thing, you know, there's a lot of like magic hour, you know, people outdoors um, which also provides a bit of a respite for the eyes from, you know, uh, everything being like a CG background and so on. Like, and, I, and and this is another one where I came into it being aware that it had been like trounced by the critics. So maybe that, you know, made me primed to be more sympathetic towards it because 
you know, I was already aware that it was supposed to be rubbish. And I came out, I, I don't really understand why, like, people turned against it so much, because, like, you know, these movies are all kind of, they have the same weaknesses, and they have, like, the same kinds of things that are good about them as well. And so it's just weird to me to be, like, come out of one Marvel movie and be like, wow, it's a masterpiece, and you come out another one, it's like, what a, what a garbage fire, this was, like, crap. It's like, it's still the same, you know? It's the same kind of, it's the same kind of thing. But overall, like, for what it was, you know, I am someone who's got, got high tolerance for, for Marvel output. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I quite liked it. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask we poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. I saw another film, The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. This is the latest Wes Anderson film. Have you seen a Wes Anderson film? Yeah. What would you expect from a Wes Anderson film? <laughs> your the intro has got a very sort of um, narrator, like doing a children's story kind of like cadence. Well, as does many of Wes's films. <laughs> so I was trying to, you know. Yeah. No, I haven't. Uh, I have not seen this one yet. So the premise is the French Dispatch is a sort of magazine, and at the start of the film, the editor of the magazine, played by Bill Murray, has died, and the magazine operates from France, but uh, it's for American readers. It's like it's sort of loosely based on uh, James Baldwin and those sort of like generation of American writers who were in Paris and wrote and were like sort of journalists on the side to fund the novels. And it's got kind of an interesting framing device where the movie is basically like the last issue of the magazine. So it's a series of short films. The first of what which is Owen Wilson's a sort of travel writer does like a sort of travel log piece. It's like a five minutes of, of Owen Wilson just sort of cycling around the sort of fictional uh, French suburb. And then the next piece is the art section, which is Tilda Swinton as the art critic talking about this art piece by this sort of insane artist played by Benicio Del Toro. And then Frances McDormand is a sort of political editor and she's got one about Timothy Chalamet as a leader of these sort of student protests, which are, I think, supposed to be explicitly the 68 student protests in Paris, but it all exists in the sort of Wesland, so I'm not quite sure. And the last piece is... Jeffrey Wright playing a sort of James Baldwin type as the food critic and a sort of crazy night he had once dining with a police commissioner. And here is a clip. His epitaph will be taken verbatim from the stenciled shingle fixed above the door of his inner office. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. <laughs> the Kremen story, revisions to a manifesto. We asked for 2,500 words, and she came in at 14,000, plus footnotes, endnotes, a glossary, and two epilogues. It's one of her best. <laughs> Sazerac? Impossible to fact check. He changes all the names and only writes about hobos, pimps, and junkies. These are his people. How about Roebuck Wright? His door's locked, but I could hear the keys clacking. Don't rush him. The question is, who gets killed? There's one piece too many, even if we print another double issue, which we can't afford under any circumstances. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. So this is very much, I think, probably like Wes Anderson at his most... Wesley, I don't know, like, I think by, by the nature of it being a uh, kind of portmanteau film, like, all his sort of, to glibly put it, like, gimmicks, his box of tricks, are on full force here. So I often think, like, like, Wes Anderson movies start with, like, voiceover and a series of, like, very composed, symmetrical shots of pastel houses establishing everything. But because there's four short films, there's just four times as much. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just that. And also that's how the film itself starts. And there's like framing devices within framing devices within framing devices. And I mean, I'm a Wes Anderson fan. I'm just happily watch, you know, a series of very famous actors deliver quite charming dialogue in pastel colored locations but it's got this curious thing of being both like a bit insubstantial but also so lovingly made and like the level of like craft how much time and effort has gone into like picking the like the perfect curtains for one scene that's like one minute long and all this stuff uh, i just find a lot there's a lot of aesthetic joy in that i do think it sort of doesn't reach the heights of his previous films because it's so i think mainly because it's like a short films and there's something a little bit just disposable about it. And this sort of framing device of the it being the last issue doesn't really have much impact because you don't Bill Murray's character is purely kind of functional. It's just to instigate the plot. The one exception to this, I think, is Jeffrey Wright, who, as this kind of James Baldwin figure, does the most... I don't know what you call it. I think there's like a very typical Wes thing of like the sad man who's like lived a lot and is like... Bill Murray in Rushmore or like Ralph Fiennes in Grand Post Hotel that sort of like wounded I'm sad remembering things thing uh, he does that the best and I kind of wish like that he, his film is by far the best of the three and I wish it had been more like that and I think the Timothy Chalamet film is the weakest and also suffers from being not quite explicitly like it's, it's not sure what it's saying it's like is this the 68 riots in which case what's the point of view from the author but it just seems like it was an excuse to indulge in people on mopeds and Wes Anderson likes the 60s he likes France and that stuff felt like not poor taste exactly but that's like a really interesting subject matter but it's being used purely for the aesthetics it's just a mood board yeah a little bit so I wasn't quite sure I wasn't particularly convinced by that chapter but you know it's under two hours it moves zippily along everybody in it is incredibly famous like Christoph Waltz is in it for like one line, like two-time Academy Award-winning actor <laughs> has like one line in it. Uh, you might find that distracting, but it's just like I'm sort of like fully paid in. It's like that's just part of the Wes Anderson thing, you know. If there's a basically a glorified cameo, it will be an incredibly famous actor delivering this one line as the doorman or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I found it just like a sort of charming, uh, maybe like a mid-level Wes. Do you think Wes Anderson is really fun to hang out with? Like, that's why he, he can get so many famous actors in his films. He's just got a lot of friends. Is he yeah. just a very good friend? You know, he's always like, he will always lend you the sugar or, you know, yeah. he always remembers your birthday and stuff like that. Maybe. And also, you don't have to work for that long, I imagine. It's like only a couple of days on set. You get a nice, beautifully tailored suit. You get to hang out with Francis McDormand. But surely, like, he can't be paying these people a ton of... Like they, they must be taking a cut on the regular fee, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, the whole budget of his movie is just on the cast and, you know, everything else is on the, like, set. So, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Must be. He must be just, like, a great guy to hang out with. Yeah. So, yeah, I very much enjoyed it. And I can imagine watching it again. But it just, it didn't reach the hype. For me, like, Grand Budapest Hotel is, like, top wet. So, it just felt, like, a little bit both incredibly meticulously made and a little bit tossed off at the same time. 
Cool. But worth a watch. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. For years, I've wanted to watch Mike Lee's Naked, but I was like, you know what? Unless it's a 4K re-release. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not fucking worth it's it, It's not going to be worth it. Am I going to see Dick Pope's cinematography in, you know, blisteringly HD quality? Or am I going to be watching some shitty, like, rip they have on Film 4? No thank you, sir. But luckily, <laughs> my prayers were answered. Because there's a big Mike Lee season at the BFI, and part of which is a centerpiece... Part of it is the fact that Naked, this movie from the early 90s, is being re-released. Yeah, 1993, Lee, um, with this sort of breakout role from uh, David Thewlis, who's the kind of centre of the film. And the film's about, he's a uh, Mancunian who we see in the very first scene fleeing what seems to be the scene of a sexual assault, or perhaps just some like bad sex, a um, little unclear. And he jumps in his car, hops down to London, and then just has like an absolutely dreadful time in London, talking incessantly uh, and being a kind of intellectual bully and like slightly sadistic lover um, with a bunch of different characters, uh, including um, an ex of his um, called Louise, played by Leslie Sharp, uh, Catherine Cartledge as uh, flatmate Sophie, um, and a memorably cartoonish turn uh, from Greg Crutwell. Um, as this evil yuppie called Jeremy, who's like interspersed like with some of the scenes, then eventually makes his way into the um, lives of the other characters. So what happened? Were you bored in Manchester? Was I bored? No, I wasn't fucking bored. I'm never bored. That's a trouble with everybody. You're all so bored. You've had nature explained to you, and you're bored with it. You've had the living body explained to you, and you're bored with it. You've had the universe explained to you, and you're bored with it. So now you just want cheap frills and, like, plenty of them, and it doesn't matter how tawdry or vacuous they are, as long as it's new, as long as it's new, as long as it flashes and fucking bleeps in 40 fucking different colours. Or whatever else you can say about me, I'm not fucking bored. Yeah, all right. So how's it all going for you? It's a bit boring, actually. An interesting watch. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed kind of chewing over it uh, subsequently, uh, and I think that, yeah, there are things on it that I thought were really, really good and some things that I think are pretty bad and have dated quite significantly. Uh, what did you make of this one? Yeah, it's uh, like, yeah, I, I I agree. It's like there were some things I really enjoyed about it. Other things I thought were just like very like clumsily done. And it's sort of interesting now as this re-release is sort of like snapshot of the time. I've read, like, the BFI always have these, like, little, uh, like, printouts of critical reviews to tell you what, uh, you know, saves me able to formulate my own opinions. But a comparison a lot of reviews made to the time was of Alfie. And, like, in the swinging 60s, like, Michael Caine is this sort of Lafario guy. Uh, and it's like, what would he be like if he lived through the 80s? And it's like, there's something about uh, David Fulis's, like like, tour de force performance which I think is almost like it's an extreme acting challenge because the character is so unbearable in a way. But like, you know, unlike Alfie who enjoyed seducing women and seems to like enjoy sex, like 
for him it's just like meaningless conquest and it's all about like exerting power and it's miserable even the sex is bad in the early 90s I I do think like it's overlong and the kind of points it makes quite well are somewhat diluted by how it just goes on a bit and it did feel like overly stagey at points I guess it's the sort of the characters like is he profound or is he just like a sort of champion bullshitter and the longer the movie went on, the more I was leaning to like sort of champion bullshit or like he didn't actually say anything of any value. He's just like, why do you want to spend time with this guy? And I do think like the Greg uh, Crut is it Crutwell? Greg Crutwell. The Greg Crutwell character is like obviously functions as sort of like almost like a symbol of like just corporate evil. But that's so at odds with Mike Lee's style. Like everything is so naturalistic that when this sort of like basically cartoon character invades the film, it just feels a bit unnecessary and a bit like. Okay, well, that's subtly gone out the window. He's kind of like a Disney villain, you know? Like, that's yeah. the level of, like, subtlety of his character. Yeah. Like, he, he displays no kind of recognisable human qualities whatsoever. He's a kind of monstrous android of, like, you know, wanker-banker capitalism. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it does sort of, like, just make the film less believable. Even though a lot of horrible stuff happens in the film, I almost like, well, we've entered the realm of, like, slightly cartoon, this doesn't really happen sort of thing. So it's sort of... I think it lost a, a little bit of its impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of main strength of the film is uh, is definitely that Dulles' performance and also, like, some of the writing is really strong. A lot of his, like, crazed rants and his the ways in which he sort of twists people's words and dunks on them and is generally mean to them, like, can be very witty. And uh, he just says so much. <laughs> he has so many words in this film and they're like, the, the clip at which they come out is just, like, very... Yeah, it's a real virtuoso performance. So, yeah, there's a lot of, like, value in that. Like, it felt quite unique, you know? It felt like I'm getting an experience here that I'm not, I'm not getting in other kinds of um, films. I think that the, the, the thing that really was an issue for me is the, like, bizarre gender dynamics of the film and its attitude towards sexual violence, which I was, like, pretty uncomfortable with. And I don't exactly know what the kind of scheme was... But it has such a strong theme of women who are victims of male sexual violence. This is like just a constantly repeated feature of the film. In the two like main male characters, the you know both the hero and the villain are basically rapists. Plus, there is a kind of subplot. He goes on this uh, nighttime uh, sort of odyssey through London, and he bumps into uh, Ewan Bremner, who's playing a like a man who is like so scottish that he just can't you can barely talk basically also a rather cartoonish character just sort of yelps and swears and then like he's got a girlfriend who's equally like you know (laughs) sort of hardly there yeah mostly just a kind of stereotype of some kind of like um you know working class like glaswegian who's going to shiv you um but, you know, that's another... Their whole relationship is just also built around, like, brutal violence with, like, her being the victim of it. And uh, I didn't fully understand, like, what... I mean, I know that the, the picture was painting of the whole world is, like, relentlessly grim. And everyone is kind of totally atomized, isolated, and, like, their communities have been, like, destroyed. And, you know, they don't have real relationships with one another. And that was the kind of miserable underworld that the film takes place within but this the emphasis on uh on violence um of men towards women just seemed like um it was you know i don't know almost like pornographic 
And I would put this down to a changing like of insensibilities um, since the, when this film came out, where wherever the line is where you can have a kind of somewhat empathetic anti-hero or a kind of interesting multi-dimensional character where you sometimes sympathy with him or cross over into just like a straight up awful person who's basically a bad guy is crossed in this movie yeah. since 1993, you know? Yeah. And I think the ambiguity about how you're supposed to assess his character where it's like, well, maybe he's just like, you're not supposed to have any sympathy with him and he's just like a complete prick. I think is, I basically think is conclusively that you are supposed to sympathize with him a bit from how the film ends, which just kind of hinted towards this potential redemption. But the dude's like, like he is a rapist, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and even if, you know, you see that as somewhat ambiguous, maybe, you know, maybe he's not completely or whatever. It's like, he's still like violence, like, you know, in like non-consensual way. And that to me is just like too irredeemable. Yeah, 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 definitely. I don't know. It just, just was wrong for his kind of character to be doing that. I feel like he was doing things where like, it just meant for the rest of the movie, I was like, it just takes the shine off his like funny dialogue because it's just like, you know, it was too messed up basically. I don't know. It didn't, I don't think, I just don't think it yeah. was well judged. No, I completely agree. And definitely there's, there's a sort of like, I don't know, like comedy of manners, like kind of fastless aspect of the movie that comes in at the end. It's like the movie, like, no, you've already entered such like dark territory. <laughs> yeah. There's no room for jokes anymore. And I do think like part of the reason why I think it's too long is like, it's sort of like two nights and I kind of feel like it would be stronger if it was just one. Because it's so something very stagey about it. Yeah. Like he just meets like a new sort of character to philosophize with. But if it's like one night, you just buy that as like a sort of premise of the film. But if it's two nights, it's like, what is this then? Like he just does this every day. Like <laughs> it doesn't really the conceit starts to wear off, I think, like after yeah. the first night. Um but yeah, I don't know. It was um I think I think maybe like the weakest part of the movie is probably the end. Like the final sequence, it does have a departure, as you say, into kind of weirdly lighter territory. Yeah. Like Claire Skinner turns up uh, as like uh, this sort of nurse character and she's basically a kind of comic relief. Yeah. It's quite odd. It's like, you know, is this what is, is this supposed to be my reward for sitting through the grimness of the rest of the film? But it just feels, it just leaves a strange like note where... Yeah, the rest of it has just been so brutal. I mean, it, because it's it does create such a powerful sort of mood that it's odd to undercut it. At the yeah, end. and then like there's something. Uh, yeah, I think that's why this sort of first hour of the movie works because it's like these dark, moody, like virtuoso camera moves. Like the cinematography is really good, and it's like depicts London as like this fucking wasteland, and like, <laughs> uh, and you know, this really moody score. And I'm sort of like into that, and then but then like. Just goes on a bit. It's like you know, okay, well, <laughs> like it just is less impactful the second time he's like stalking the streets of London on the second night. It's like he already did this. Yeah, yeah. So just an odd one. I mean, I'm so glad I've seen it. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely glad, glad to have seen it. Then you know, yeah, I do think it's like the movie that which is like most like if you had like an idea of like what a Mike Lee film is like, who would like confirm it instantly. He's made like much lighter films and sort of comedies and stuff, but like my before I watched his movies, I was like, he just makes those sort of miserable films where everything's fucking awful. And he watched this, like, well, <laughs> this is sort of true of this film. Like, you know, topsy turvy and happy go lucky are a bit more on the lighter side of things. But there's something, like... there's something that's funny about the like the realist kind of 
like uh, sort of tone of it, but it actually isn't very realist at all. You know, no. I don't know. Maybe I'm not putting that correctly, but you know, the the kitchen sink drama is like like uh, has the reputation of being this sort of fly on the wall type thing. You know, life in its in its ugly glory, where like people don't do the hoovering and you know yeah. live in these like cluttered like miserable lives or whatever. But this film is just bleak in a way which is like somewhat kind of dreamlike almost you know yeah it's it's not does not exist in the in the in the like in the normal world like at all it's definitely not not a kind of realist film um but yeah i guess it captures this the state of mind for a particular type of person in you know in 1993 um i imagine it was a pretty miserable year yeah i was three i remember not enjoying it at all yeah yeah when i was i was three i was like oh god tories again you fucking kidding me you're fucking kidding me they've been in government for two years <laughs> my whole life born in a Tory britain yeah Ugh. the worst my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end and that's the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. Apologies again that this has been such a sort of delayed, staggered release of these reviews. But uh, on the plus side, all the films mentioned are available to watch online now. So we didn't have to go to the cinema where there are people and COVID and that. Not sure when we'll be back at some point in the future. Until then, bye-bye now. Bye. Let's do it. All right, you Marvel fanboys, you people that are subscribed to me, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to me right now. Right fucking now. When I say that Marvel Studios Eternals is one of the worst movies this year and the worst Marvel movie ever, I mean that Marvel Studios Eternals is one of the worst movies this year and the worst Marvel movie ever. Like, thank God I didn't get to pay for this movie. Thank God I got to watch it for free online. Thank Godzilla, because this movie is terrible. This movie is embarrassingly bad. It's not even funny. There's nothing good about this movie. There's absolutely nothing good about this movie. I can't believe it was worse than Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame used to be the worst Marvel movie ever, but now it's this film. This film is a piece of shit, and it's horrible. Like, I don't even know how to start with this movie. How do I even start with how bad this movie is? How do I do it? How do I start with how bad this movie is? Where do I start? The characters? The story? How do I start this review? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.